0: Hello, this is Heath Brown for the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, uh, we have the pleasure to hear from Mitch Solenberger and uh, Mark Rosell We'll be talking to Mitch about their book, The President's Czars, Undermining Congress and the Constitution. This is a 2000, uh, 2012 publication from the University of Kansas Press. It's a really interesting book and take on uh, the presidency from the public law perspective. Uh, I think that everyone's going to enjoy the book if you have the chance to read it, and I hope we'll enjoy hearing from Mitch. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. Today, we have the pleasure to uh, speak with Mitch Solenberger, who's the author of the new book, The President's Czars, Undermining Congress and the Constitution. Mitch has written the book with Mark Rosell and is here today Welcome, Mitch. Thank you for having me. Mitch, before we get started on this really interesting book, maybe you can talk a little bit about yourself and maybe the bigger picture of where this book comes from, whether it's from a larger project or from graduate work, or or where where is this in your career?
1: Uh, Well, it's really the uh, uh, second stage of uh, my research, uh, or second step to my research, you know, my my dissertation was born out of my work at the uh, Congressional Research Service on uh, judicial appointments and the confirmation process in general. And uh, uh, from my dissertation, I had uh, published a uh, book uh, titled The President uh, Shall Nominate. And then, uh, a lot of my early work has been in the uh, area of appointments. Since then, um, this is kind of an offshoot of um, my work at Congressional Research Service. Uh, is sort of my subset work, which was really administrative law type uh, 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 studies uh, of uh, of the executive branch, and and um, I was increasingly curious with with how how uh, uh, executive branch structure was formed and how uh, rules and uh, regulations were promulgated, it, which, again, led me, in, in, at least in grad school, my administrative law interest and uh, obviously public law interest in general. So really it's just that kind of offshoot of the practical workings of Congress and my dealings with Congress as an analyst at Congressional Research Service. For And that was about a decade ago, I would say.
0: Yeah, and tell me about
1: the collaboration with Mark Rosell. Uh, you know, working with Mark is great. I, you know, I recommend for any young scholar to, uh, uh, uh find a, a more experienced uh person that they can co-author with and uh it, you know when you're frustrated with the ins and outs of the review process you know journal submissions that type thing you can you know kind of vent to that person or at least ask questions about you know what happens next you know and that was great with uh, Mark uh but um uh Mark has... It, I've benefited with, with my collaborations with Mark because he, he does have uh, more experience with, uh, um, you know, with the academic publishing circles, and uh, uh, he he brings a different perspective than I had. Uh, particularly, seeing I started off my career not really in academia; I was working again at Congressional Research Service. So, it, it, I think I have a different view of things than uh, he does, and uh, some others do.
0: With in mind, let's turn to the book and, and to the preface. Um, you you don't start the book, but but you start the writing, what what the first thing that someone would read, uh, with a bold statement about your method. So you write, the analysis in this book is contrary to trends in political science scholarship and conventional wisdom about the presidency.
1: What do you mean by this? Uh, well, there's a couple of, uh points there i think the the first is the and this is something that i guess dates back to the methods debates of i guess the 50s and 60s when the behaviorless era really uh, uh took hold and and uh, uh it, what we saw was this this uh, uh i guess uh, for lack of a better word a downgrading of a focus on public law itself and, and that's what we're speaking to, or at least one of the elements we're speaking to is the need to to um, to to focus political science. You know, not a complete focus, but at least to have an appreciation for its public law roots. And it's something that we've we've somewhat uh, lost, and 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 I do realize, and I. And I make this point in the preface that there are certainly public law scholars that are doing great work out there, but uh, historical institutionalism uh, it, it, within public law is it, it isn't it isn't dominant, and it certainly isn't a focus of a lot of scholars' works.
0: It, the, the method. Though you describe it as as contrary to the trends, is a very make, it makes for a very readable book, and so I think that um, on a methods level, but also how that translates to the actual writing of the book turned out very well. Well,
1: um, you know, I I, I got to uh, say too that there's there's a number of uh, scholars out there that you know we did. Um, that created foundational work or wrote foundational work that, that made this, this book possible. I mean, it's, it's, it really wouldn't have, you know, 10, 20 years ago. I don't think, uh, something, you know, a study like this nature would have been at all possible without the, uh, secondary work. I'm thinking of, uh, Matthew Dickinson, uh, um, uh, you know, even Lou Fisher, who, uh, uh, we mentioned in the preface he's uh, written a lot on uh, uh, the relationship between the president and Congress and uh, uh, it, it just you know we kind of stand on the shoulders of giants that kind of cliche um, uh, was uh, was this a case that
0: you had to make to uh, University of Kansas press or did they buy into the, the premise early on or was was the case one that you had to convince them of
1: no, I think they saw the the scholarly merit in a study of uh, executive branch czars. I mean, the term itself is relatively amorphous, so uh, um, you know they, they they sort of they what happened in terms of the dialogue between us and in Kansas was we offered the book proposal and they. They uh, sent it out for review, and then the reviewers came in a relatively positive on, it. obviously, a lot of uh, methodological concerns, particularly, again, because, you know, we... It's part of our vernacular. ours wasn't there within political science, so there was some heavy lifting we had to do there. But um, uh, it, it was all contingent on us returning a, uh, a final manuscript to go out again for peer review. So, um, at each step of the way, they were uh, somewhat skeptical, but at the same time, they were receptive uh, uh, that somebody would write on this topic.
0: Yeah. So let's let's get to the sort of the meat of the book and. You begin the book by talking about Kenneth Feinberg. Yes. Um, who is he, and and why is he so important?
1: Well, Kenneth Feinberg is uh, uh, Obama's pay czar, you know, and uh, basically he's the person who who is uh, Obama appointed to to uh, as a result of the TARP. Uh, 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 passing of the TARP legislation which is the uh troubled asset relief program and uh this was created in the aftermath of the the economic recession and the downturn in the economy Lehman Brothers collapse etc and all of a sudden we have congress coming in and uh writing legislation to bail out these banks and as part of this uh bailout uh uh we needed to actually implement it. The executive branch did, and obviously uh, this is something completely new, and the the existing executive branch structure isn't there. So Kenneth Feinberg's position is created as a result of this.
0: On on page 8, you actually get into this, what you've referred to a couple of times, which is a definitional um, difficulty. Yes. And, and on, on page 8, you, you establish your working uh, definition of a czar, mm-hmm. um, I wonder if you could briefly describe uh, how you reached this decision, uh, this definition. What it then, uh, what you then capture in your definition, and what it leaves out, um, and, and how it really establishes this foundation on which the research is built.
1: Uh, great questions. You know, as a big picture issue with. The definitional issue with executive branch czars—it's—it's—we it, it, had to take a step back and, and and try to figure out, you know, what is this phenomenon? And part of it was kind of delving into the history, and um, you know, just particularly the popular media account of what is a czar. And uh, after that, it's—it was a, a matter of looking at the political science scholarship out there, the literature on um you know what is the development you know what is the scholarship of uh, development of the executive branch and uh, federal government in general and pl- presidential powers uh particularly at the by the start of the 20th century and going on and um all I have to say is that it, it, the, the the phenomenon itself and how we articulated the, the the definition and how we came up with the definition it, it is by tracing that development and again it's why historical institutionalism is so useful here in that you're taking kind of this long view of the history you know and in, in my graduate training in reading people like Skoronic was immensely helpful with that and uh, um, uh, in terms of the developing of the uh, the definition, I'll say that um, uh, the concern that we found, and this is one that helped us with articulating it, was that uh, there seemed to be, since the early 20th century, and this wasn't just seemed, you know, the all-evidence point to this, is that, as the executive branch developed and grew, um, you had certain entities within it that um, uh, uh, were given more and more power, either through statute or through presidential decree, and it led to an accountability question. And you see this in fits and spurts within things like the White House Authorization Act of 1978, and eventually we've said that the phenomenon itself manifests is manifested through the appointment power. That that the 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 nominees or not the nominees the officials of concern for Congress at various points of times or who the media labels as czar are really concerned because of that accountability question and that gets into the whole idea of uh, developing what does the appointments clause mean and uh, so on from there. Now, in terms of uh, uh, the the definition of czars itself, um, it's really predicated on the issue of Senate confirmation that uh, executive branch czar typically means, under our definition, is an executive branch official who is not confirmed by the Senate and is exercising this final decision-making authority. And that authority actually entails, uh, uh, for instance, controlling budgetary programs, uh, coordinating policy areas, uh, promulgating rules, regulations, and uh, uh, it, it doesn't include the definition itself. It doesn't include positions, specific positions. And that's something actually Congress has uh, struggled with. Now, this is particularly true during the Roosevelt administration, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, where Congress was concerned with the growth of the executive branch and uh, um, the kind of uh, wholesale giving away of its uh, legislative prerogatives to the president. And there were a number of pieces of legislation that tried to um, at least bring accountability back into the executive branch. And one of the ways they were going to do that was this wholesale uh, um, uh, reclassification of public officials, uh, how they were appointed, as opposed to being purely presidentially appointed, such and such officials, depending on you know who they decided to name in the bill, uh, would be Senate-confirmed. And we stayed, we stayed away from that. So we weren't classifying uh, uh, heads of agencies or certain, you know, we didn't do that. We tried to make it a, a part, uh, the definition is a part of their function, to describe what we're talking about in terms of executive branch czars, not necessarily that every single line officer of a department needs to be Senate confirmed.
0: Now, you start much of this discussion um in in the progressive movement in chapter two you're describing the progressive movement and and you write uh, as a result the progressives worked to break the hold of democratic controls on the presidency and favored a bureaucracy within the executive branch staffed by national experts free from congressional fetters how does this famous american political movement fit into your explanation of czars is the progressive movement where it all starts, or is it simply accelerated during that time period?
1: Well, I think the, the triumph of uh, aggressive movement is um, what, they, what was accomplished during World War I, and, uh, and that was to place within the executive branch certain government officials who didn't have that traditional accountability to Congress and that were really not even... Res- um, uh, uh authorized by a uh, congressional statute and i think that's one of the side issues with the definition of czars is that um although it's not a definitional component of how we describe the uh term uh it, it is an important feature is this is lack of statutory authorization um, getting back to your question on the progressive era, uh, certainly the progressives didn't create czars. We we didn't claim that in the book. In terms of uh, uh, tracing their history, czars date back at least to the uh, uh, to George Washington's administration. And, and, but those are what what I would classify, and we don't use this term in the uh, 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 book, but of foreign related czars so they were these special ambassadors and so during the course of the 19th century we had presidents appointing special ambassadors for special projects and it wasn't until the start of the 20th century that you had domestic czars and uh, that was you know Woodrow Wilson's administration where they manifest themselves and, and the progressive movement you know the if you want to if you want to at least trust its ideological um, forebears, um, I would really say the, uh, uh, the civil service reformers, starting right after the Civil War, uh, the uh, progressive owe a lot to them. And where civil service reformers were, were saying, you know, we need to take uh, politics out of appointments, we need to get rid of patronage, and really the way to do that was to trust the executive branch. And eventually, that occurs where you you get rid of the confirmation process for a bunch of different classes of uh, uh, public officials, and uh, um, uh, really all of the discretionary decision making is happening at by the presidents or uh, uh, heads of departments and agencies. So um, once you get to the progressive era, uh, it, it's only one one small step where you can can get to the point where where uh, 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 executive branches czars can be can be uh, created without much um, uh, uh, pushback from Congress.
0: Now, one could read uh, about halfway through the book and say to oneself, uh, "So what? Yes, um, maybe these czars are technically unconstitutional, but but what harm have they really done?" And you answer this question in page 69 in the description of FDR's use of czars during World War II to address um, those of Japanese ancestry. I wonder if you can tell that story and, and, and relate that, that really powerful anecdote for those that, that sort of offer the, the, the argument that, well, no harm is really being done. They're, they're solving problems the same way anyone else would solve problems.
1: Yeah, it's actually... Um glad you brought that up because the the issue of uh, the Japanese internment camps and uh, the curfew laws that were put in place and uh Uh, Czar's interwove the story of those two things. Obviously, anybody who teaches uh, a public law scholar and teaches uh, a con law class will go through and uh, teach uh, and review Korematsu, you know, the famous Japanese Mm -hmm. internment case. And, and, And I think we go through that case and we say this is a black mark on the Supreme Court's legacy. Where it, it, uh, it put its stamp of approval on something that most uh, Americans will look at with uh, disgust, which is the, you know the rounding up of individuals without any cause, just based on their nat- national origin, and um, you know this was this wasn't completely a culpability of the executive branch. You know, Congress did pass laws to this respect, saying you know uh, uh, the president has the authority to do this. However, you know, in terms of the execution of it, um, what occurred was Roosevelt needed, um, aside from his you know General Dewitt, some some administrative oversight, and that's something that wasn't in existence within the executive branch. So through executive. Uh, again, for the lack of a better word, fiat. Um, there was no congressional authorization, nothing in the Constitution that allows for this. He created a czar, um, which, you know, uh, it, I don't think many know, but it was actually the brother of future President Eisenhower. And, uh, you know, the czar of of the, the Japanese roundup, um, you know, he, he provided the administrative oversight to accomplish this task, and, and he could do it any way he wanted to without any kind of accountability, and obviously there was no accountability coming from the courts, and certainly not from uh, Congress. And, and I think this gets to uh, another point, and you'll probably bring it up anyways, is that much of what we've experienced with the executive branch czars over the course of the 20th century and into this century has been a a abdication of institutional responsibilities of Congress, where they they, they notice what's going on and they don't do anything, or if they try to do something, it's relatively unproductive reforms. And uh, uh, Most of the political science scholarship uh, in, in this vein focuses on the aftermath of the imperial presidency in Nixon's administration where you have the War Powers Resolution being passed in a really doesn't do much in terms of Congress regaining its war power authority. Um, the same, the same, the same uh, I would say the same applies here, which is that even if Congress uh, is aware of a problem, if they see this as a problem, they don't do anything, or if they do something, it's, it's not particularly effective.
0: Now, and actually sort of to, to continue this historical move and to follow up on that, um, in Chapter 6, you you get to some of the later time periods and you describe, you say that Reagan, Bush, and Clinton did not completely revive the pre-Watergate presidential use of czars. W- why was this the case? Um, we don't typically think of the Bill Clinton White House and Ronald Reagan's White House as sharing much in common, but in this case, they do share this. At least um, there was use of czars, but, but, but not to the extent of, those that went before, and, and to some extent, those that came came later. So, what is it that that binds these three administrations together in this way?
1: Well, you know, I'll take a step back first and say the really the height of the uh, uh, czars within the uh, mid twentieth century presidents was Nixon. I, I, I'm. I could count the number. I believe he had thirteen. We we say, and then after that, obviously, had the backlash to the imperial presidency. So Ford and Carter have none, and it was a slow revival. And uh, uh, Shirley Warshaw, in her her excellent book on uh, uh, you know uh, the the president's cabinet, uh, mentions the the there was this continued. Uh, um, backlash and opposition to presidential power going not only into Ford Carter, but also Reagan's, the first Bush, and Clinton's, and so Reagan, Bush, and Clinton were all experiencing this. So that's one of the uh, explanations we give. But we also give uh, uh, explanations for the lack of czars and the slow violence, just particular uh, um, uh, issues that are special for each. Uh, president so for instance uh, Reagan he had a you know in in a lot of scholarship on the unitary executive theory focuses on Reagan and how he saw the need to revive the presidency particularly after the pushback to the uh, imperial presidency uh, during the uh, mid to late 70s but his revival of the presidency and presidential power never took uh, uh, took the form of czars. He he saw czars, if you will, as a way to diminish presidential power. And, and we explain in uh, the Reagan section this particular story of how Congress wanted Reagan to have a drug czar. And throughout Reagan's initial uh, uh, his first term and into his second term, he's always in opposition. He's saying no, 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 and. He, and only at the end does he actually sign the law uh, uh, that creates this "quote unquote" drug czar, and he only does that uh, because it would help out his uh, vice president in the uh, upcoming election. And this is something that um, Bush didn't want hanging over him as uh, as as a, as a weapon that uh, the Democrats could use, where you know the Bush is soft on on drugs and crime and. Uh, You know, Bush and Reagan oppose the creation of a drug czar that can do something about drugs in America. So it was only at the very end of his presidency that uh, Reagan uh, finally gives in to congressional demands. And then, you know, for Bush, uh, um, George H.W. Bush, he he saw the role of the cabinet as as something that um, was important. And uh, Warshaw documents this and we're going off of her scholarship uh, uh, so creating executive brand Czars during his administration he he felt like the the power at least is what we're arguing he his actions show that the uh, the power center should be within the uh, departments and then finally with uh, Clinton Clinton there's a uh, various uh, issues within his administration that really just just prevented the creation of czars. I mean, he did create a couple, but, I mean, there were scandals going on. He initially wanted to make any kind of substantial public policy reform efforts through law. I mean, that's with his health care reform. And, and then, really, he was mired from the middle of his presidency until the end through impeachment. Uh, you know, the, the Kenneth Starr investigation is just uh, um, a slow walk to... His, to the end of his presidency where there wasn't much he could do, obviously, and then, of course, all of the foreign uh, uh, policy concerns he had. So,
0: And you, you then continue the story up through, through the contemporary time period, and we'll, I think we'll let people who read the book uh, you know, get, get the punchlines to those. But at the end of the book, you, you sort of circle back and you, you make some proposals for reform. Wonder if you could summarize those proposals or at least describe one of the one of the proposals in particular that you think could be ado- adopted without too much wrangling that would help to right this ship that that um, you have you have described in the previous chapters
1: oh oh yikes um, <laughs> uh, my confidence in there not being too much wrangling in the uh, in DC is uh, not overwhelming, so. right?
0: This is you know <laughs> some, this is some wrangling, not extreme. Wrangling.
1: <laughs> okay, um, well, you know the are. I think the the one reform proposal that I would like to highlight, and I think it's important for not just uh, presidential scholars but political science in, in general to know, is that you know there is controlling legal authority for the executive branch, in particular the White House or the executive office of the President, and most people know the story of how you know, the executive office of the president was created, you know, FDR said he, you know, uh, uh, needed help. So he, he he creates the Brownlow Committee and Brownlow, Louis Brownlow famously says the president needs help, which leads to the Reorganization Act of 1939, which creates, or at least allows Roosevelt to create the executive office of the president. And the executive office of the president is currently what is the administrative apparatus for all the different White House offices and uh, structures, agencies, it within it uh, uh, that you see today. And whenever you give that diagram, if anybody teaches, you know, intro to American government or whatnot, if you give the diagram when you teach the presidency chapter of all the different offices, that's what the EPO is, executive office of the president. But what we say as a reform, to get back to that, is that um, Congress needs to take another look at, at that law. And the last time they revamped it was in 1978 with the White House Authorization Act. And basically what it is, it's a revamping of Title Three of the United States Code. And Title Three is where you find everything to deal with really the White House and Executive um, Office of the President. And the reason we say it needs to be revamped is that really some of the the assumptions made about the law haven't been borne out. For instance, uh, um, there were actually pretty strict reporting requirements for the president that were placed on the president that were stricken or taken out during the conference committee. And basically what the conference committee report says is that, well, you know what, the Carter administration promised that these things would happen. These things haven't happened. And and, and what what I'm getting at are are certain reporting requirements requirements. We don't even know how many individuals are in the executive office of the president, let alone a rough guesstimation. I mean, it's pure speculation. You know, some people, uh, you hear numbers of 500 within the White House office, 5,000 within the executive office of the president. That's really speculation because the reporting requirements are pretty thin. Um, and, and what we suggest is. Let's just have a basic accounting of what's going on in the executive branch, particularly within the executive office of the president. And so much policymaking happens in the executive office of the president. And for the public, in particular political scientists, to not have that information to study and and, and to write articles and books to help lawmakers and public officials approve, you know, how government functions and how we promulgate public policy is just, it's a travesty. So I, I would, again, it's just, it, it, it's focusing on Title Three and to see some reforms mm-hmm. happen by Congress. And I think there should be bipartisan support for that, um, Again, I'm not as confident in that as I was maybe a couple years ago, but uh, I think that's the start. I think that really is. And, and it might not even be about bringing accountability where there are individuals who we classify as czars, turn them into Senate-confirmed public officials. It, it, more than anything else, the start is to just figure out what's going on, and we don't know that.
0: The irony here is that probably the only way for this to get done is to appoint a czar in (laughs) order to take on this issue, which would certainly confound the problem.
1: Well, Congress is—that's their proclivity, right? I mean, instead of them doing the heavy lifting, they created the 9/11 Commission, and they—in the 9/11 Commission was. Given access to all these documents, and they had the institutional knowledge, and, and then you have the, the Bush administration claiming executive privilege, or at least claiming some of their White House aides and officials aren't going to be able to testify before Congress, but they're allowed to testify before this 9/11 commission. So
0: yeah, that's the commissions are the are the corollary on Capitol Hill <laughs> of the of the czars. Mitch, thank you very much for for your time today. Mitch Solenberger and Mark Rosell, are the authors of The President's Czar's Undermining Congress and the Constitution, New 2012 from University of Kansas Press. I hope that everyone has a chance to uh, pick this book up. I think that you'll learn a lot. Mitch, thank you very much. Thank
1: you. Thanks for having me.